And it's time to, to introduce our first guest. And I've been looking forward to this conversation since I read the article at theconversation.com, the title of which is... All I Want for Christmas is a Hollywood Blockbuster, written by Paul Moore. Professor Moore is in the Department of Sociology at Ryerson University in Toronto, and he specializes in cinema, the history of cinema, and the impact of the movie business on our lives. Professor Moore, Paul, good morning and welcome. Morning, Sterling. Morning to the West Coast out there. Uh, well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the lack of blockbusters this year. Because, well, let's 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 go back even further, Paul. Because one thing that you identify in this piece is the custom of going to the movies on Christmas Day. In my family, it was never a thing. Mo, did you go to the movies? Was going to the movies in your family on Christmas Day a no, thing? Not so much a family thing, but as I became an adult, I started to go. One of my favorite films of all time, The Wolf of Wall Street, was released on Christmas. Day seven years ago. So ah, I've okay. done it. Yeah. So, Paul, how long has going to the movies on Christmas Day been? An, uh, it's an American tradition, but it goes back many decades, doesn't it? Well, it's not only American, it's what I found. Um, like you, I never went to the theater or the movies on Christmas Day, but uh, on the other hand, um, like we just heard from Mo. Um, Hollywood's been releasing big blockbusters, especially their Oscar bait, on Christmas Day um, for uh, since all the way back to the 40s is when I located that idea of a big award-winning film on Christmas Day. Um, one of the things I did when I started digging into the archives, even in Canada, even in Vancouver and Toronto, where you couldn't see a movie on Sunday... right. You could go to the theater on Christmas Day. Christmas Day was an open um, day where you could go out and celebrate after church, after dinner with the family. Mm-hmm. And um, theaters were open even in old-time Toronto. Theaters were open on Christmas Day, believe it or not. I was actually surprised about that. But it's especially an American thing, too, the idea of... Um, kind of a, a celebration uh, on Christmas Day. Um, there's this idea even of, um, of uh, 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 for the Jewish community, of it being a holiday in particular, too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, Chinese food in a movie, is, uh-huh. is, there's actually some truth to that joke about that being something that uh, Jewish people could do on the holidays, too. Ah, okay. So now I know that in the in the article that you wrote at theconversation.com, there's a there's a photograph of a newspaper ad, and this goes back to the roaring twenties when the people went to the Nickelodeon to see movies because they cost five cents a pop. And this is uh, this again was a big Christmas week thing back in the nineteen twenties, Paul. Well, this is I found, um, and it's part of the article. I'll full page um, of from the Chicago Tribune, 1915, um, Merry Christmas to motion picture fans. And this was, uh, you know, a really big deal. I've even found um, back in the newspaper archives and, you know, especially uh, Vancouver papers are online these days, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's um, fascinating to see special charity shows, special children's matinees, matinees for the newsboys on Christmas afternoon. Um, you know, it, it really was um, something that once 
the uh, once the family part of the day was done in the morning, right. that uh, going out and having fun with friends and uh, going to the movies, but also all kinds of other things, was um, a, a big celebration, a big thing. And then, of course, Hollywood picks up on this starting in the 20s and 30s and through to today, or actually not today. That's part of the thing. <laughs> that, exactly. Um, yeah. it's, it's that it's not happening this year at all. Are, or almost at all, but Hollywood picks up on it and and starts making it not just Christmas Day, not just Christmas Week, but like the whole holiday movie season. That idea of the holiday movie season starting at American Thanksgiving in November, I found that all the way back to the 30s as well. Paul, when did they start making Christmas-specific movies? Because the classics that we still re- revisit every Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life and, and various, uh, these are black and white to movies from the 30s and so on. Was that when they started making specifically special Christmas movies, or was it even earlier than that? Well, I did find one um, a Christmas movie called a Christmas movie. Uh, star of Bethlehem was the name of it by this early movie star from 1912. Wow. Her name was Florence Florence Labadee. You, I don't think very many people other than silent movie buffs would have ever heard of Florence Labadee. But um, but the, the idea of a Christmas movie goes is even older than uh, Hollywood itself, because 1912, 1913, that's not the studios that we now call Hollywood. That's even five, four or five years before that. Um, but definitely Hollywood um, starts making uh, holiday movies, Christmas movies, um, things that tap into sentiment and mm-hmm. nostalgia and, and really kind of romanticizing, um, like you said, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, those movies that we watch year in, year out every Absolutely. day. Um, the idea of watching them every year, though, that really doesn't happen until television comes along in the 50s and 60s. Uh-huh. So the, way that, the way that you would um, watch a movie over and over every year is, is something that it's actually television stations tap into that rather than uh, movie theaters uh, with the back catalog and, and uh, that kind of approach to it. I presume we can do that on Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime now, right? <laughs> At our own convenience. We don't have to wait until it actually starts on TV. Well, this is what we're missing this year, though. We have the back catalog. We have the Netflix menu. Mm. We can choose something to watch if we already want to watch it. But what we're missing with movie theaters being closed is even learning about new films that we don't know that we want to watch. Um, You know, the, the excitement of learning about something new is really built on the, the PR and the publicity and the advertising and all the movie reviews um, based on its opening in theaters. And, they haven't yet figured out a way, even in the pandemic with the crisis we're in the middle of now, of replacing all that publicity that happens for the opening day in a movie theater. It doesn't really open on um, on Crave or Netflix in the exact way uh, mm-hmm. with all that PR buzz all around it. Well, that's true. And of course, this year, uh, because of the necessity of uh, pivoting in terms of strategy, the movie theaters, uh, Paul, and we'll talk more about this after the news break, but the movie theaters have decided, not all of them yet, but certainly one of the big ones, has decided that going forward, they're going to simultaneously release their their big screen uh, features 
on, on, uh, in the cinema, of course, but also simultaneously on its streaming service, HBO Max. This is Warner Brothers. What do you make of that? Well, Warner Brothers really kicked over the apple cart there, and lots of really famous directors and stars are, are really actually mad about them, yeah. publicly complaining about it. But Warner Brothers um, owns HBO Max. Uh, they're both part of AT and T in the U.S. Don't don't get, you won't find it on your crave yet. Right, right, right. You're in Canada on your HBO in Canada, but. Um, because they don't own movie theaters, but they do own HBO Max, they've decided, what are we going to do? They've actually kind of broken all of their contracts. Who knows how much millions and millions of dollars they're going to have to pay out to the stars and the directors and everyone. But they're, they're thinking there's no time like the present. We've really got to do something to make up for what's looking like not just the lost year of 2020, box, But a pretty but bleak future for the, yeah, for the short term please. anyway we're talking holiday movies now with paul moore a professor of sociology and a movie historian at ryerson university in toronto and paul uh, let me quote uh, something from the article that brought you to our attention in the first place all i want for christmas is a hollywood blockbuster from this article quote there's likely to be little holiday movie going in 2020 some wonder if there will be a future for movie going at all if cinemas can't turn a profit until a covid 19 vaccine is widely available and if streaming habits don't subside with the pandemic basically uh, you're 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 saying that the future of the big screen cinema is still very risky paul well definitely the big cinema chains uh cineplex in canada maybe landmark too and amc regal the big chains in the u.s you know um, they're really burning through cash while there a lot of theaters are closed yeah. and while um, uh, uh, they're waiting for even new blockbusters to open. So even when they're open, they don't have anything lately that anyone would go see, even if they wanted to. Um, so th- all of those businesses are likely in really precarious uh, financial troubles, as are you know things like restaurants and and theaters and museums. Sure, and, you know COVID's really wrecked all sorts of things. Um, the big difference: I talked to a friend who manages a little theater, a little uh, neighborhood theater here in Toronto, and I asked him, "How is it different than a restaurant? Like when when things are o- over, you just reopen, right?" And he explained, no, the problem with uh, movie theaters in particular is that it's going to take months and months and months for new product to come in and for new movies to come around that anyone wants to go see. Um, So they're really, um, I can't imagine, I I don't know the business end of it, but I can imagine um, things you know, really on the brink of bankruptcy for uh, the big chains. And and I suppose uh, and there there would be that predictable lag time between the reopening of the actual movie theater and something brand new and fresh and big enough to get you motivated to go there. But uh, it, it's also you of all people, Paul Moore, are going to appreciate this. I think there is something that is simply to be said for the big screen experience. I don't care how big your rec room TV is or how fantastic your stereo is. 
is in your house, it's not as good as the stereo at the theater. And it's the screen is certainly nowhere near the size of the, the movie screens in the theaters. Our movie critic, Rick Forchok, is listening right now. He, he, he reviews movies with us, Paul, and he's been to two cinema movies in eight months. He's going oh. nuts. So I, what I'm what I'm re- referring to here is pent-up demand. For those of us who, who deeply appreciate the big screen, once we have a chance to go back and there's something to go see, don't you think there'll be lineups again? I think there'll be lineups for uh, the James Bond film that everyone's been waiting months and months to go see for... Um, Maybe the the big Dune remake that uh, Canadian director Denis Villeneuve is going to make, but like already that Dune film, Warner's is going to put it on on streaming day and date. So the problem isn't that people like you and me who want to see it in the theater are not going to go to the theater. The problem is that the the ten to fifteen percent of people. Um, are going to stay home. And that 10 to 15% say, I'm estimating, that's where all the profit comes from. Sure. And if, if even a handful fewer in every screening stay home and watch it at home instead, um, that's, that's the bottom line is, is the real issue. And the other thing I'd say, you know, big screen, big giant sound, um, that's also not everything. I, I did go see Tenet when it opened in August. Yeah, it, so did Rick, um, yeah. And I saw it on IMAX here at the Ontario Cinesphere. It couldn't be a bigger screen, couldn't be bigger sound, but with only 50 people dispersed all throughout the theater, uh, it, it felt like I was almost home alone in my living room. <laughs> oh, couch. of course, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Paul, I got a question. So, when, when we talk about watching movies around Christmas time, was there already a shift towards staying at home and watching something on Netflix? I know that every few years, Netflix seems to put out a big original hit. And in, in 2015, we had the very bingeable Making a Murderer. Uh, 2018, we had Bird Box. And this year, they're releasing a big George Clooney sci-fi thriller, The Midnight Sky. So are we going to see streaming services like Netflix, Disney Plus, and Amazon Prime start gearing more releases with the same strategy that the theaters used? Well, one of the issues that you point out, just even just thinking about Netflix, there's a big difference between a seven-episode series like Queen's Gambit that everyone watched mm-hmm. and, and a film that's 90 minutes to two hours. And what could happen if everything we stream is at home if everything we see is uh, streaming at home um definitely on netflix on streaming there's a trend towards the series the uh the limited series more like queen's gambit and Mm -hmm. a trend away Mm -hmm. from uh uninterrupted two-hour play it uh from beginning to end film so that blurring uh between what is a movie and what is television um, that could really slip away too, and and everything could be more like oh Breaking Bad or um, or a series, and and the idea of a movie as something that you watch uninterrupted um, once all the way through, um, that could really slip away, and everything becomes a little more like TV. 
Right. Now, I read that Warner Brothers, which is releasing Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max, actually mm-hmm. announced that in Canada it will be available on premium video-on-demand services. Not confirmed which platform, but I think Apple iTunes or Google Play. And it will cost a whopping 30 bucks, twenty nine ninety nine for a two-day rental. Do you think Canadians are actually going to shell out that money to watch and stream this blockbuster? Well, Disney did something similar back in September when it made Mulan available for 35 Canadian. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that time, that was only if you were already a Disney Plus subscriber. Then you could pay 35 on top of that. (laughs) Um, And that didn't go that well for uh, for Disney. Uh, It was an experiment. They had to try something. Sure. Um, 30 bucks on top of... um, I don't know. I haven't personally myself paid more than the six or seven dollar even for a home rental. When they started making things available for twenty dollars and twenty five dollars in March, um, I've never um, paid that extra uh, amount of um, paying twenty or thirty to see it sooner. I've always kind of been patient. If I'm going to watch it at home, it kind of doesn't matter when I watch it. Sure. Sure. Uh, final question to you, Paul Moore, and it's great to have you with us this morning. Just a real treat to kick around the old movie stuff. And, and Rick's in the wings. He's coming up, and he'll have his turn in a few minutes. Uh, Harrison Ford has said he's coming back at 78 to be Indiana Jones one more time. So what does that tell you about uh, the movie theater business and the, 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 the production business? They're, they're anxious as all get out to, to get back at it, Paul. Well, do you think he's going to have a cane instead of a whip? <laughs> I, I can just imagine. I don't know. I can, um, you know, it really talks about um, the franchise and the idea of revisiting something. Uh, you know, I still remember 1981 seeing the original Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mm-hmm. vividly remember that, even though it's like 20 years, 40, 40 years ago now. Um, um, you know, there are more Star Wars movies coming. There are more Avatar movies coming. There are more oh, uh, all of the franchises. Yep. I mean, it really says that there's something about that mass experience of, of seeing something that everyone else has seen um, that is is something that Hollywood taps into, that uh, that other kinds of entertainment in this niche market of social media you know we there's something where we're all under the same umbrella and if that takes indiana jones then that makes me a little happier all right paul moore thanks for doing this great to have you on board we'll uh, we'll talk again after the holidays have an excellent holiday season i hope you enjoy some movie entertainment Thanks, Sterling. I'll find something. All right. Good deal, Paul. We'll talk again. Thanks for this. And uh, joined on the line now from Toronto by Marty Weintraub. Mr. Weintraub is the retail lead for Deloitte, and they've just released their 2020 holiday retail outlook. Marty Weintraub, good morning and welcome back. Hey, good morning. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Let me quote from uh, from some of the information we received from your office, Marty. We found, this is about the study on Black Friday, we found that while the COVID-19 pandemic has changed consumers' shopping habits, it hasn't dampened their love of a good deal. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about how Black Friday 2020, Marty, was so different from previous years. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, we still have a lot of online shopping happening, and more than we've had 
leading into Black Friday. And that's actually the reason we did this uh, follow-up study to the one we did just a couple of months ago, because, uh, you know, most retailers and most shoppers uh, activate their maximum spend during Black Friday. So we were curious kind of how that money would be divvied out. And, and we learned a couple of interesting things and a couple of things that are actually even surprising. Okay, so um, what didn't surprise you? Uh, we, for example, we know uh, just on on the on the headlines after Black Friday that while they may have set purchasing dollar number records online, Marty, in person shopping on Black Friday was down. Does that uh, does, do those headlines jive with what you're about to tell us here? Yeah, I mean, we still had about uh, I would say just over two thirds of spending, actually about sixty four percent of all Black Friday. Spending happened online. Sure, so that didn't really that didn't really surprise us. To your point, right? We still have people afraid to go out to stores. Yep. Not to mention that uh, things are getting locked down more and more. I mean, the region that I happen to live in here, outside of the GTA in Toronto, just got locked down as of twelve one a.m. today. So, you know, it continues to happen. So you'll have no choice but to buy online. But the spend was still pretty good. I mean, people said uh, about a thousand Canadians that we uh, interviewed about five hundred and seventy five dollars uh, being spent on Black Friday, which, by the way, is about um, a good third of the total spending budget that we talked about when I was last on your show last yeah. ago, which is about fifteen hundred bucks. So a third of that's a big chunk that just happened in the last couple of weeks. So that did and did you when you were talking about the average price that a person was going to anticipate spending for Christmas twenty twenty being around fifteen hundred? Did you expect more than a third of that to go in one day? Yeah, we, we use them to be pretty high. And, and the one thing that's interesting, Black Friday, I'll really refer to it as one day being the Black Friday. Unfortunately, yeah. it actually doesn't play out that way, as you know. Even in previous years, I mean, this year, for sure, they try to spread it out, if you will, to sort of Black Friday being sort of a two- or three-week shopping period. And even now, you're still hearing Black Friday ads, yep. you know, December 13th, right? So that Friday has come and gone a long time ago. But, you know, because of uh, the need to not have people crowd into stores and malls and even online, uh, they just spread it out over more time. So it's really more than a day, obviously. So, Marty, what are what are retailers telling you? We're looking so far at input and and metrics of consumers and their activities. What are the retailers telling you, especially those with noticeable downtrending in-person store numbers? Yeah, so I think if we exclude, you know, food, restaurants, takeout, which obviously are having a difficult, difficult time, um, the ones that are winning are clearly going to be the ones in the essentials category, which is going to be your your big box retailers Mm -hmm. uh, and food and grocery, essentially. And the ones that uh, obviously are going to continue to be challenged are going to be some of the smaller, less known specialty and apparel chains. I mean, with some exceptions of being the big high in demand brands that are usually athletic oriented uh, and more suitable for work at home and whatnot. Uh, so that's sort of how we're seeing it. The big, big hit, and this is no surprise because it's all over the headlines, and we dug into it a little bit too, which was the impact on small mom-and-pop shops. Um, and in fact, in the Black Friday study, it was one of the emerging themes that about 83% of Canadians are really, really worried about local retailers and small businesses just unfortunately potentially having to close their, their doors for good. So that, that's probably the big and most scariest piece of, of what came out of this. So uh, in in terms of uh, shopping, because I was I was listening to Har- uh, Harley Finkelstein, that's Shopify's president. He said this is a transformative year for e-commerce globally. Uh, but when you look at the numbers, e-commerce accounts for about fifteen percent of total retail sales, at least in the United States. So is this a transformative year, or maybe will we see e-commerce slide back down to its original trajectory? 
Um, so it's an interesting question. So we've seen e-commerce trajectory slide back a little bit from the early days, just to, just to be totally clear. I mean, there was a really big skyrocket, a pullback, and then sort of another skyrocket. And, and that's just kind of moving and shaking, quite frankly, with lockdowns and whatnot. But none of that does change the fact, and, and that's correct. He's right that uh, it is a transformative year for sure for all businesses of all sizes, um, having to really accelerate their investments in all things e-commerce and digital. Unfortunately, though, for the smaller, you know, less, well-funded and capitalized businesses, namely the mom-and-pop shops, yeah. they don't have those funds. But an organization like Shopify offers a fantastic range of solutions for small businesses to get online quickly. Um, and in fact, uh, we see that happening more and more now every single week that our, our business goes by. We're working with those smaller retailers as well to figure out how to transform their businesses and take advantage and not be caught uh, in the dust. Marty, if 83% of Canadian consumers fear the uh, the, the- pandemic will force uh, many small businesses and other uh, small uh, retailers to close their stores for good. If 83% of us have that concern, did you ask a follow-up question to something to the effect of, so you're going to do anything about it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we absolutely did. It's it's the obvious question, right? Yeah, in fact, we did. And uh, it's interesting, right? So 62% said they will try to purchase their holiday gifts from local shops. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in whatever format that is. My worry, though, although that's what they said on the survey, my worry is when you look back to that sort of what do you pick, the $1,500 number that we talked about for the full basket or just that $575 number for Black Friday. Right. It's one thing for a percentage of Canadians to say they'll do it. The question is how much of those dollars will go to local retailers. My fear is that too small of an amount of that 575 will go to local shops. So, you know, for example, I'll go and buy my one thing from my local Main Street shop mm-hmm. and then everything else, you know, online at Amazon mm-hmm. or one of the other big. That to me is the big fear of this is, is how much money goes there versus how many Canadians say they will. Right. And of course, you're talking, you're, you're just outside Toronto. You're in an area that now is uh, Pre- Premier Ford has decided to lock down. So even if you are a small enterprise, you're not able to, you're not able to have your doors open for the next couple of weeks. The, the, and for some retailers, no news here, uh, this, this Christmas shopping season is a make it or break it time of year. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And, and, you know, I would say on top of that, the uh, this doesn't help the situation, but one of the other things we learned in the study, Sterling, was that, you know, Amazon moved their, uh, their prime-based shopping day up this year, as you probably know, up until October, which was a change from previous years. And that has a big impact on this Black Friday shopping, too, and taking money away from uh, some of the smaller businesses. And that uh, we're predicting that Amazon Prime Day in its new format and timing could quote unquote become the new Black Friday as it continues to steal share. We saw that in terms of not only just the number of Amazon Prime members, which grew three percent just in the last few months, which sounds small, but in that small period of months, that's a big impact. You know, fifty percent of Prime members shopped on Prime Day, so that's huge, and that chips away. And and thirty four percent of Prime members spent more on Prime Day than Black Friday. Wow. So those are all pretty scary statistics if you're not Amazon. Absolutely. I'm Sterling Fox. Julie Wong is driving. Mo Amir is co-hosting today. And our guest this half hour is Marty Weintraub, the national retail lead for Delight, who have just released the 2020 uh, retail survey. And Marty, you were talking earlier about uh, Black Friday and how Amazon Prime Day could likely eclipse Black Friday in terms of the shopping day of the year. So what about Boxing Day? I mean, we have this this sort of old kind of quirky tradition of deals after. After Christmas. Is that ancient history now? What's going on? 
You know, it's funny. It's been a hypothesis of mine for a couple of years now that we've been doing this. And interestingly, it's kind of sticking around is what I'd say. Um, it's slowly kind of coming down from its peak high a few years ago. So Black Friday continues to sort of steal share uh, from its brother shopping day or sister shopping day, for example. Okay. But, uh, you know, we asked Canadians that and 75% that we talked about here said they're still going to buy Boxing Week sales. And I think you know, whether that's a one-year anomaly or not, I mean, I think it is tied to the fact that Boxing Day is all about deals, and you talked about that in, in the segment opening. Mm-hmm. And we're absolutely seeing that, uh, that deal-seeking behavior, uh, myself included. I'm doing a renovation, so I'm looking for deals myself on electronics and whatnot. And, and now, between now and Boxing Day, quite frankly, is when those deals and inventory clearance will happen. So, Marty, I got to ask for the late shoppers, the procrastinators. What about the Saturday before Christmas? That's always a big shopping day, right? What What do we have to expect for this this Saturday before the Christmas? Yeah, you're right. Normally, that is absolutely the case. Uh, this year, though, I wonder to what extent that'll be true. Again, only because a lot of retailers are, quite frankly, closed from from operating, at least in some of the the big big markets. Yeah. So. I think it'll, a lot of that's obviously, you know, 65% of that's moving online. And, you know, when we did the study uh, a couple of months ago, we saw that about 15% of Canadians said they'd be doing most of their shopping in December, which is, quote unquote, your last minute shoppers, which mm-hmm. is a sort of a smaller amount than normal because we have a lot of Canadians now, as I'm sure you would imagine, asking questions about delivery capacity in the system, right? So mm-hmm. we actually asked that. Uh, funny enough, though, only about a third of Canadians are worried that uh, there'll be delivery days, which I think is a little bit uh, light. I, I suspect there's going to be more challenges than Canadians are expecting. So for those that haven't done the bulk of their shopping by now, I'd say be careful because you are at risk for not getting your presents delivered on time. And when it comes to deals, I was reading that at the start of the pandemic, many retailers were very conservative when it came to ordering inventory, which led to manufacturers taking a pause. So there wasn't this big glut of inventory where in November and December, you'd normally see these big discounts to clear the shelves. I know the Gap took a similar strategy to keep their inventories very lean all year. So is this a good year for shopping deals? Um, I think I think yes, it will be a good deal for shopping deals, but it's going to be kind of uneven depending what you're buying. So, like in clothing and apparel, you're right. Now, those are what we call long lead time businesses, which means those retailers are making their bets months and months away, anywhere from you know eight to twelve months out. So, to the extent uh, because we're you know sort of in month ten or so of the pandemic, if you will, eleven. It's, you know, a little bit hard to react. Now, they made these commitments, quite frankly, before the pandemic started. So mm-hmm. they may have cut some orders on those businesses. But the issue is on, like, the hard goods, things that are, think about appliances, things for your home that have been flying off shelves. Uh, some of that stuff is hard to get to, and you have to wait months now because of some of those kind of pullbacks. So it's a bit of a mixed situation as it relates to what business we're talking about specifically. Interesting. Marty, when you go back to Black Friday for just a second, if, if you would, uh, what did you find that people spent the bulk of their money on? Did you ask? Because uh, you said the average tab per person on Black Friday was about 575 bucks. What did we spend our money on? Yeah, well, here's a couple things I'll say. Number one is 60% of the spend went to ourselves or our home. So that's sort of insight number one. So oh, okay. But some of that was, uh, let's call it selfish spending or self-care, maybe a more polite term these days. But uh, so a lot of it went to ourselves, which, you know, probably isn't surprising, given a lot of us have been holding off. I mean, we've seen savings rates at an all-time high. Yes. Uh, probably not a surprise. So we've let loose a little bit on ourselves and our families and our homes. So that would be number one. Uh, but I would say outside of that, uh, and by the way, those two categories are electronics and home. Just so you know, that's probably not a surprise. TVs, tablets, computers, etc. Other than that, the big dollars went uh, 
outside of that, still to those categories, went to electronics, uh, got a good chunk of it. Uh, clothing, got another good chunk of it. Uh, and toys and hobbies would have got the third biggest chunk as well. So probably not surprising. Those are very typical of Black Friday buckets where people put their money. Ah, okay. And uh, as far as Prime Day becoming the new Black Friday, you mentioned this a few moments ago before we went to the break. Flesh that out for us a little bit because, I mean, it it, it uh, is indicative of the market dominance of Amazon. How much so, Marty? Yeah, I mean, it's a building story. It's, it's not a big surprise and it's not overnight. And we've got lots of retailers uh, globally that are fighting Amazon, so to speak, uh, in the trenches, working on upping their game to, I would say, catch up. And some have made some really, really good progress. I mean, there's, you know, I, I try to stay away from citing any particular retailer uh, by, by name, but there's a couple of very large uh, global and North American retailers that are investing heavily and going to give Amazon a good good run for their money, mm-hmm. except they're kind of playing a bit of a catch-up game, right? So Amazon's in pole position right now, but I would tell you, based on the conversations I've had with, with many retail executives, that based on the investments I see they're making in fulfillment and e-commerce and digital marketing and their supply chains, that over the next, you know, I'd say 12 to 24 months, we're going to see some pretty formidable competition for Amazon with some of the big, obvious brands that we all know and sometimes love. Um, and I think that will start to change. But for now, Amazon absolutely has a lead. Marty, when we talk post-pandemic, are there some sectors of retail that still benefit from the in-person shopping experience? Or is everyone going to have to go online and compete with Amazon? Uh, I would say, I mean, this is going to be a blanket thing, but I think everyone has to be online and compete with Amazon. That's, that's almost foundational. Yeah. And I think it does mean something different in different sectors. So again, we used to always talk about, you know, clothing and apparel being a laggard for reasons of, you know, obvious reasons of fit and, and people like to touch the fabric and kind of see themselves in the mirror. But, you know, we're seeing very, very quickly technology emerge and it's been out for a while that helps you kind of size and fit things, even footwear online. I mean, there's a lot of, new tech and artificial intelligence tools. They're not perfect yet, but they're getting really, really good. Mm-hmm. And they're getting really, really good right now because they have to, right? So normally I would say those kinds of things would take years. Now we're seeing it evolve in months, right? So you're seeing a lot of retailers play with, and even in the health and beauty around makeup and skincare, not just clothing, where those were traditionally much better served in store with sales associates that knew the product and maybe knew you and, and try to kind of recommend that's all moving online and, you know, whether it's virtual appointments with sales and sales kits or, you know, virtual fitting, um, you know, magic mirrors, all those kinds of things. It's hitting us right now, which is really, really exciting if you uh, like that kind of stuff and if you're into it. But we still are having a segment of, of the population that like to go in stores. That will not go away, but it's going to slowly chip away over time. Yeah, it sure is. You know, a lot of us still, like, you know, you just still, you like to touch the fabric. You sure. like to make sure it's going to fit. All those important details. Marty, great to have you back on the show again. We appreciate your giving up a little time on your weekend uh, to be with us and uh, to go through the latest Deloitte survey. And if you'd like to re- find out more about it, friends, just go to Deloitte.ca and look for the 2020 Holiday Outlook. Marty Weintraub, all the best for the holidays ahead. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, and happy holidays to you guys as well. Talk to you soon. You bet. Marty Weintraub at Deloitte in Toronto. Always a pleasure to welcome our next guest back onto the program. She is the Seniors Advocate for British Columbia, Isabel McKenzie. Welcome back, and good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Isabel. Uh, You've just released your annual report and indicated in your report you're going to uh, launch a review or an investigation into elder abuse in the province of British Columbia. Tell us why. 
Well, it's a systemic review, and and we started this review uh, much earlier in this in the year. We expected to have it out, but as you know, there's been a, a, a few intervening issues. Just a few. Um, just a few. But I think, Sterling, for us, what is important when we look year over year at, at measuring our progress and w- where are our supports being helpful and where do we need to do more, we find it very challenging to understand the degree to which elder abuse uh, may or may not be happening in British Columbia. And part of that is because we just don't have good information. We don't have a comprehensive way of reporting elder abuse if we see it. Mm -hmm. We don't uh, have a comprehensive way of tracking what happens to those reports we receive. And we're not convinced that we've had a good education program for the public around what is elder abuse, you know, what does it look like mm-hmm. if you see this, what should you do? And so that's the impetus behind our uh, systemic review. I would imagine, though, when people think they see uh, a situation involving elder abuse, the, the typical reaction would be, if you feel like reporting it, and most of us would, I think, they would, you would call the police. What have the police told you about frequency of complaints or calls? And, and you've hit the nub of the issue right there, Sterling, because the police are not necessarily the appropriate uh, body to report uh, suspected financial abuse, emotional abuse, or what another form of abuse that's very common amongst older adults, which is uh, neglect and self-neglect. And so you find that things have to rise to a certain threshold of criminal uh, activity for yeah. the police to uh, pursue. If it doesn't, uh, it's unclear what happens to that issue at that point. And I think we need to look at a, at a better, more comprehensive system, perhaps not unlike what we look at when we suspect child abuse, for example. Yeah, and I think it's probably important, and you stopped me cold because I didn't. I should have done this at the outset to get you to describe what you understand elder abuse to be. Because uh, when you're calling, if you're calling the cops to report elder abuse, it it sort of would, to your mind, border on some kind of criminal activity involving something physical. But elder abuse can take so many different forms. Isabel, please take a moment and describe some of them to us? Well, um, one of the, the issues we see a lot of uh, is what we call uh, neglect and self-neglect. So somebody doesn't appear to be able to care for themselves or someone appears to not have that person in their life who should be caring for them doing that. Those kinds of assessments are around uh, capacity to make informed decisions uh, the understanding of what are the supports that are necessary, those are not really the kinds of assessments that our police officers sure. are trained to do. Right. Um, the other kind of abuse uh, that you hear much about is financial abuse. Sometimes it's criminal. Often it isn't. Uh, sometimes it's subtle. Uh, sometimes it's family members where money is flowing to sons or daughters or grandchildren that may or may not be appropriate. Other times it's money flowing to commercial vendors that may or may not be criminal. It may not be outright fraud, but is it really pressure tactics and 
and taking advantage of someone who doesn't have the capacity to understand the financial decisions they're making. These are the kinds of things that I think we're not doing as effective a job at uh, investigating and following up on and, and making sure we understand what's happening out there. Yeah, Mo Amir is uh, hosting with me this morning, Isabel. He has a question for you right now. Yeah, so Isabel, I wanted to ask you, you made mention that you don't have the proper tools to measure abuse or neglect of seniors. So what are the proper tools to, to measure this? And has the province provided this to your office? Well, that's part of the systemic review uh, that we're undertaking, which is we'll be making some recommendations about that. But right now, what we have is, is, for want of a better term, a bit of a fragmented system. So everybody uh, is trying to do their part, I think would be the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you know, Sterling mentioned, some people will phone the police. Yeah. We have a system in British Columbia under the Adult Guardianship Act called a designated agency. We don't think there's a, a high awareness of that. Designated agencies in British Columbia are our five health authorities, Community Living BC. People can report um, potential financial abuse to the public guardian and trustee. And so everybody has their little piece of it. Um, We don't know, for example, whether it's the same person that was reported to the designated agency that was also reported to the public guardian and trustee. Mm. There's not a good tracking system, if you will. And I think that basically overall... We're concerned that there's just not an awareness amongst the public of what to do and when to do it in terms of uh, abuse and neglect of, of older adults. Well, I think you're bang on, uh, Isabel. I don't think many of us would know what to do. Uh, and so ideally, at the end of this review, would the, would the object of the exercise be to have a single focal point so that if there are I- indications uh, of elder abuse of any kind going on, there will be one number to call. And if the police need to be notified, through that number, that connection can be made, but everyone will go to this same number. Is that the object of the exercise, ultimately? I think, ultimately, that's where we'll land, Sterling. I mean, we've seen historically that that works, the clarity of the message. Uh, We've seen it, you know, even I can remember when you used to have to remember the number for police, the number for fire, (laughs) the number for ambulance. Now you need to remember one number. Um, and so I think that, that we know that that works. Um, and so I think it's, you know, you, everybody goes through the same door, if you will, and then once you're through that door, the system support, you know, figures out where you have to go. But right now, we don't really have that one door mm-hmm. that people go through. And then people have to know. So having the system in place and the number in place is one piece of it. The other piece is, People have to know about that. Um, And, you know, one is necessary but not sufficient. So uh, that, I think, is, is certainly where our review at the moment is leading us. And we hope to have that review out uh, in the first uh, few months of 2021. Isabel, is there anything any of us listening to the broadcast this morning can do to help you? Uh, sometimes you look for public input through the website or whatever. Is this one of those occasions where people, just normal British Columbia taxpayers, can somehow or another assist in the review? Or are, is it so far underway that all is well, wheels are turning, we'll have results for you soon? 
Um, we are always interested in uh, feedback from the public. And no, the report's not, as we say, done and dusted. Uh, it's still actively being worked on. And I would say that, speaking of numbers, um, I can give you a long 1-800 number or I can give you a very simple number. Call 211 and they will connect you with my office. Um, we also have a website, seniorsadvocatebc.ca, mm-hmm. and people can provide uh, feedback through that website as well. And we welcome ideas, obviously, and suggestions. And we also like to hear stories of what is happening. We we do roll that up every week. Uh, I do, as part of my weekly briefings, um, look at what what kinds of themes of issues are coming in from the public. Uh, and that will often lead to a decision by my office to do a systemic review or to undertake a uh, a study of something. Interesting stuff. So the website again, friends, is Seniors Advocate BC. All one word: SeniorsAdvocateBC.ca. And uh, lots of great information, including vaccine information and more COVID nineteen information. Isabel McKenzie, uh, we wish you considerable success with this very important review, and uh, look forward to an opportunity to discuss its contents when it becomes public. And between now and that next occasion, allow me to just take a moment to thank you for the good work you do for us all, and to wish you the very best for the holiday season ahead. Well, thank you very much, Sterling, and all the best for this uh, unique holiday season <laughs> that we're, we're going to have. And, and for the people listening, uh, as the seniors advocate, I would ask, uh, if you want to keep seniors safe, please follow our public health orders. We need to get this transmission of COVID down, and that's how we're going to keep seniors safe until we can get this vaccine fully rolled out, which is now we see the end in sight. That's right. Isabel, thanks for this. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You There's Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. Cynthia Bolter is our guest. Ms. Bolter is the Chief Operating Officer with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Cynthia, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks so much. It's great to have you with us. And it's all about the virtual food drive for Christmas 2020. Tell us all about it, Cynthia, please. Well, the pandemic has been so difficult for so many people uh, in uh, in our province and, and, I mean, obviously across the world. And I think one of the, the positive takeaways for so many, I hope, charities has been the conversion to people donating online, mm-hmm. donating money. Uh, and so for, um, for the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, when people donate money versus collecting food, uh, we are able to buy the food that we want. We menu plan every week. We have three children's programs rich in nutrition. So when we're buying apples, that buying power is over $4 to one. When we're buying potatoes, it's over $11. When we're buying beans, it's almost $2. So, you know, our average buying power is, is about $2 to every dollar that the that the donors give us. So it is absolutely the best way uh, in my mind to support virtually any charity. And it simply just allows you, with the access to volume buying, to get prices that the rest of us simply can't. It's so true. And we are even um, starting to look at how can we help out other charities that uh, need support. We do give food to other food banks uh, when we have large donations and we're able to share. But some of those smaller food banks don't have our buying power because of the volume that we buy in. So if we can help out and buy for them, they get more than, than they would normally. 
And a virtual food drive is it's so much fun for companies uh, or groups of people to to do because it can be a you can donate online and make a one time donation, but you can also set up your own virtual food drive and have people compete and see what people have donated. You can have teams, you can have departments, you could have provinces compete against provinces, depending on, you know, if somebody else was using this technology. It's uh, it's a wonderfully transparent, fun, competitive way to help a charity. Cynthia, I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners how your charity and other charities have been affected by the pandemic. Yeah, you know, for food banks, um, I think we've seen two things. Uh, I think that the um, initially people stayed home when the pandemic hit in the spring and they were really concerned and then they started to come back out. Uh, so we've done a couple of things. One, we had to find all new locations. So I, I can honestly tell you that there is not one aspect of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank that remains untouched mm-hmm. by COVID-19. Um, not everybody we knew would feel comfortable coming to a large uh, safe location, but just traveling and, and participating in that. So we started to look at how do we get more food into the communities, um, uh, into the neighborhood houses that might open a, a food bank uh, periodically throughout the week and for a smaller amounts of people to come. And we took some federal funding that we had never received before and purchased industrial fridges and freezers. Uh, and reached out to our community partners, even new community agencies that we hadn't dealt with before, and said, hey, if you had this equipment, this refrigeration equipment, would that help your programs, your food programs, throughout the week, whatever they are? Uh, And we've heard a resounding yes. Mm. And we've also offered food for up to about 450 people a week. Not not all take that, but... So we've started a new program um, that allows the more food to get into our communities and people to access that food uh, without traveling um, too far a distance. And so when we look at what we're putting into the community, uh, for the last several months, it's been 150,000 to 200,000 more uh, pounds of food each month than we were a year ago at this time. My goodness, that, that's fantastic. And of course, the uh, in, in invention being the uh, uh, mother of necessity, rather being the mother of invention, you have all, of course, these now refrigeration units available to the smaller food banks that did not have them just a short while ago. That makes their job a little easier and allows them to stretch their resources even further. We do. And, you know, we we have to focus, the food banking industry is an interesting one. So we focus um, uh, within our catchment area, which is uh, Vancouver, Burnaby, New Westminster, West Vancouver, and North Vancouver. So we focus on our community agencies and getting the food into those locations. But we do offer our donations um, of food to other food banks. Um, and they also have access to this federal money, as you are saying. So um, through whether that's distributed directly or through Food Banks BC. So, so yeah, I, I feel like we can help out individuals more as a result of this, but also support other food banks uh, with their capacity and um, sustainability as well. Cynthia, you mentioned this in passing a few moments ago, and I'd, I'd appreciate it if you'd revisit it for a second. You talked about children. Uh, a few moments ago, and, and how, mm-hmm. in terms of your client base, how many children does the Greater Vancouver Food Bank serve on a weekly basis? 
Well, um, when we look at our, our overall client percentage in terms of direct uh, clients, we are seeing about 25% um, of the roughly 6,000 people who are today coming uh, to us directly as individuals for food. Mm-hmm. It's gone up a bit. Um, our seniors percentage has gone down a bit, so uh, it's around 20%. But it's really interesting location to location. So in Vancouver, for example, we have uh, at least 30% seniors, and we see way more single people and couples in Vancouver than we say than we do in, say, uh, New West or Burnaby especially. We see more families mm-hmm. um, and more children. So that really is an average. And um, the, the kids' programs for me has been a, a passion project. We're actually looking right now at the at the baby program to see if we can enrich it a little bit. It's from birth to two. And then we have a new preschooler program from two to five with lots of protein and, and iron and healthy foods to get kids um, eating at an early age. And then we just built a grade schooler program for kids six to 12 to help families support school age kids with food the family can help prepare, but also that the food um, that the child can just eat themselves quite easily. Cynthia, really quickly, can you donate by texting this year? I know you've had texting drives in the past as well. Yes, we have. And we had an amazing um, competition uh, on Food Bank Friday. Uh, we had a, a challenge uh, and we raised over $60,000, including a $25,000 matching gift. And um, we can uh, text um, a heart for $25, um, a banana for uh, $10. And uh, I believe, and I don't have it in front of me, I apologize, but I think we have uh, an apple for $5 and it's 30333. And it's a super slick program. You get a, uh, a text back confirming that you want to donate. Uh, to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. It gets added to your phone bill seamlessly, and you can request uh, a receipt. So it's been really fun, uh, and we have raised thousands uh, for food on Food Bank Friday through that campaign. And Fantastic. It's, it's fun. Three, three, yeah. zero, three, 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 right? Yes, that's Th- right. Three, zero, three, three, three. You can text to donate to the Vancouver Food Bank. Cynthia Bolter, the Chief Operating Officer for the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, back with us again this morning. Uh, best of luck to making it through the holiday season successfully, Cynthia. We always appreciate your visits. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Okay, take care, everybody. Kyla Lee on the phone. Kyla is a criminal defense lawyer and a partner with the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. Kyla, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling and Mo. It's nice to chat with you guys. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, we we do have a regular round of roadblocks. The Operation Counterattack is going for 2020, as it has done for holiday seasons for decades around Metro Vancouver, correct? It is. It's back in full force this year, notwithstanding the pandemic. Exactly. So, Kyla, I have a question. When, when you're in one of these roadblocks, are you allowed to wear a mask? And if a police officer asks you to take off your mask, do you have to obey them? You are allowed to wear a mask going through a roadblock. And as far as I can tell, and I did some research into this issue, there's no law requiring you to remove your mask. Uh-huh. Um, police officers are entitled to identify you, but your only obligation is to state your name and address and produce your license, hmm. all of which can be done without removing the mask. You don't have an obligation to show them the lower half of your face. Hmm. So my next question is, you're wearing a mask, 
presumably the police officer is wearing a mask, doesn't that kind of block the beer breath that you might have if you are driving under the influence? This is one reason why you might want to wear a mask at a roadblock. Um, You know, officers are going to be trying to smell your breath. And if they smell something that they think is alcohol, even if you haven't been drinking, they're likely going to ask you to take a breathalyzer test. And what are the public safety concerns when it comes to breathalyzers? Because you and I talked about this before, and there doesn't seem to be a, a clear safety protocol here. There is no safety protocol in place right now in British Columbia for the cleaning of breathalyzers between use. So each time a person blows, there's an individual disposable mouthpiece, Mm -hmm. which ordinarily would be fine. But the problem is that the device itself blows your exhausted air right onto the officer's hand. That hand is then touching the next mouthpiece and being held right underneath your nose while the next person is blowing. So Hmm. it's, it's passing on all of these germs. Inside the device, there are also two tiny little ports that can't physically be cleaned. And all of your expelled breath particles are going to collect inside those ports in the device. And if you just inhale just the slightest after somebody else has blown into it, you're going to be inhaling their expelled breath particles that are still inside the unit. Right. So we know that if you deny a breathalyzer, you're basically admitting that that you're driving under the influence. So what does this mean if you deny a breathalyzer based on public safety concerns or, or just safety concerns in general? This hasn't been litigated in court yet. Um, I've argued it in some hearings in front of the superintendent of motor vehicles. And on some occasions, they've accepted that a person had a legitimate excuse for refusing to provide a sample. But there's no clear law on the issue. So, you know, as it stands, if you say, no, I'm not going to blow because that's not safe, you could end up with the same consequences or worse Hmm. than if you blew and you blew over the limit. It is, it is a crime, yes, Kyla, to refuse to take a breathalyzer test at the roadside? It is a criminal offense to refuse to blow without a reasonable excuse. So the big question that our courts need to answer is whether this pandemic itself poses a reasonable excuse for refusing to comply. Kyla, there was an incident out of Winnipeg that went viral. Did you watch this? I've watched a few. <laughs> well, it was one. Re- it was one recently. A Winnipeg police officer is not wearing a mask. A passenger in a car that's pulled over asks them to do so. Apparently, the officer was just going to issue a warning, and he says that, but he issues a ticket instead. Are police officers required to wear a mask even if they're outside and you're inside your vehicle? There's no requirement right now in BC for police officers to wear a mask. Hmm. And that is extremely troubling to me. It's something I've been calling for since the the beginning of all of this, that, you know, the rest of us are wearing masks. Police are getting very close to you in roadblocks uh, and these types of situations. They have to for their safety, for your safety, and to properly conduct the investigation. But they also need to follow these protocols. And and I think that that should include the outdoor situations of police roadblocks just for that enhanced safety of everybody involved. So I shouldn't be going around telling cops to wear masks is what you're saying. I would ask very politely. (laughs) (laughs) So some rumors uh, circulating, lots of, uh, well, lots of confusion, Kyla, lots of frustration and lots of rumors as a consequence. And there were some uh, relating to uh, Surrey uh, RCMP activities over the past few weeks. For example, people saying, well, you know, the Mounties in Surrey, they're just driving around and they're pulling over cars full of people and investigating whether they're all from the same household. And they're doing the same thing at restaurants. They're going up to tables of people with large groups and, and, and demanding 
outstanding ID. Well, you know, this is this is false. And they actually had to get the Surrey RCMP to come out front and, and get on camera and say, this is this is bogus. They're, this is made up stuff. We're not doing that. But uh, I, what I, what are they doing in terms of surveillance of those who would flaunt the public health orders? The police are aware of the people who have been very vocal about their disagreement with public health orders, and they are monitoring those individuals and making sure that if they are flaunting the public health orders, appropriate measures are being taken, that they're ticketed or they're they're arrested. Um, There was a a high-profile case a couple weeks ago of an individual who was arrested and is now being held in custody because he continuously defies quarantine orders. Right, yeah. And so the police are on it when it comes to these cases of individuals. If there are, you know, the aberrant situations of, of people who decide to have a house party or decide to have more people over that get reported, police will come and investigate. And we are seeing a lot of tickets being issued for violating the social distancing and gathering orders. And there is a dedicated snitch line, right, where you can rat out your neighbors if they're not following orders. It's very Orwellian, but yes, yeah, there is a way to do it. <laughs> And I suspect, Kyla, over the Christmas holidays, uh, I think that phone number is, uh, Mo and I were talking about this during the news, I think that phone number is going to be very busy. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. are just, I mean, we're pretty stretched. It's been a long, long 11 months. And now Christmas, uh, which is the peak of the emotional year for many, many <laughs> of us, is is essentially denied. Well, that's not, I mean, that's a little dramatic, but it's not the same, not even close in many situations. And if you see, if you're following the rules, and foregoing all of those family festivities, celebrations, all that stuff, and the idiot across the street is having a house party, I'm thinking you're going to be picking up the phone and calling that number. Well, I mean, I know that I, for one, will be feeling very scroogey on Christmas Day if I see other people going to, to their houses. But I think the best thing to do is, you know, have a polite conversation beforehand with your loved ones, with your friends and with your neighbors and say, look, this is the expectation. This is for your safety. This is for my safety. I want you to be healthy and well, and I want this to be over sooner. And if we all get on board and comply, it's going to end faster than if we continue to defy the orders. Kyle, I have a quick question. If you are at a restaurant with someone who is not in your household and it's just the two of you, can a police officer reasonably come up to you and ask for identification to see whether you're in the same household? No, a police officer would have to have some basis to come and identify you. Uh, Just randomly going up to people who the police officer has no even suspicion that uh, they're committing an offense uh, would not constitute a lawful request for identification, and you would be entitled to refuse that. The other thing is people who don't live together can still be in a restaurant together if they both live alone, and they're both that one or two people Hmm. that the other person is allowed to have. So we're not in a police state yet, as some anti-mask, anti-vaxxers have have us believe. We're a long way from being in a police state. (laughs) Well, and that's partly why the Surrey Mounties had to come out and say, look, we're not going up to people in restaurants and Mm -hmm. demanding ID. We're not pulling over cars with large groups of people and demanding ID. It's it's because the, the, the rumor begins, Kyla, as you know, and begins to it just swells and grows and gets out of out of control pretty quickly, which is why they had to put a put a damper on it pretty quickly as well. 
And it's unfortunate that they had to do that because I think to some extent the idea that this was going on or that this could happen was serving a deterrent effect. And I think Mm -hmm. that coming out and saying we're not doing this and we can't do this is only going to embolden the people who want to violate these rules to do it more. And what about, uh, very quickly, if you get a ticket for being what is deemed to be at the moment in violation of a public health order, is there recourse? Absolutely. Just like any other ticket you get, you can dispute it. And you can uh, challenge the ticket on the basis that you believe your rights have been violated and the courts will make a determination. Interesting stuff. Kyla, probably not going to have a chance to talk to you before the, uh, the holidays are over. So in advance, Merry Christmas. Thanks, as always. We appreciate it. Thank you. Same to you. And Mo, uh, we're going to throw this segment over to you because this is the uh, the homework that we you were assigned a few <laughs> days ago when we found out Mo was going to host today. Uh, Andrew and I decided, well, uh, let's let's give Mo a project. And by gosh, you found the right person to talk to us all this morning about the farmer protests that have we've seen recently here in Canada in Vancouver, but apparently are taking place with equal energy. The world over. Mm-hmm. So we're, jo- we're joined on the line by Maninder Singh. He's a community organizer and spokesperson for the BC Gurdwaras Council. Maninder, how are you this morning? Hi, thank you. Uh, good, and thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Let's just start from what's happening in India. We've seen these protests by farmers there. Can you give me the broad strokes of what's going on? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the... the, the Farmers in the, they refer to as Kassans, and so it's called the Kassan movement, so roughly a farmer movement. Uh, they've been uh, marginalized for uh, decades or since like the partition and the British colonization leaving. And uh, what we've seen recently is just that uh, in September of 2020, just a few months ago, that three new bills were introduced. And the bills effectively, what they would do, and again, in broad strokes, uh, it would remove uh, any sort of dispute resolution that uh, small-time farmers would have. And when we say small-time farmers, these are farmers that have less than five acres of land uh, approximately, and that makes up about 87% of uh, the farming that is in India, uh, mm-hmm. according to the uh, the Indian Indian government statistics, uh, so they would actually have dispute resolutions that would be removed. Uh, essentially, the second uh, thing that would happen is that they have a, a small market system where farmers are able to sell produce um, and uh, sell their their goods, um, and the small uh, those would be finished, and uh, major corporations would be given like open access to uh, fixed prices, which goes into the kind of like the third portion, which is the removal of uh, minimum support prices. Um, which the government lays out, uh, they don't really ever meet them, uh, but they're there as a kind of like a threshold that this would be a guaranteed price um, to keep uh, farmers uh, kind of moving and kind of alive at the end of the day because it is one of those industries that makes up uh, more than half the workforce in India, the agricultural sector. Mm-hmm. So it, all of that being removed, what it does is that when you put all three together, it um, it takes the bargaining power away from workers uh, and then it leaves them kind of like ultimately at the power of like these organizations, corporations that really just buy them out, leave them destitute and homeless. And we've seen that happen in other parts of India in the past, uh, in Bahad and another state. At the state level, it was done in 2006 and it yielded horrible results. Uh, and then migrant workers from uh, farm laborers from that part of the country started moving to other parts where this hadn't happened yet. So now this is kind of like the final blow for the rest of the country. Sure. And so, uh, Menither, we're seeing protests largely emerge from the Sikh community. One thing I want to clear up for the listeners who might not be aware, Sikhs are a religious group who generally belong to the Punjabi ethnic group, but not all Punjabis are Sikhs. Is that right? 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, like uh, the uh, the stronghold is in the in the Punjab, uh, both uh, in uh, in Punjab and India and Pakistan. After partition, it got split in half. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, yeah, there's other communities as well. Uh, the six are the vast majority, uh, and also from that perspective, there's um, there, there's a reason I think why the Sikh community is so active right now. Um, like for them, it's uh, and this is globally. Uh, this is like for us is like a manifestation of like seven decades of discrimination and oppression, mm-hmm. uh, mass arrests, torture, genocide, and infiltration uh, at the hands of the Indian government. So th- this is just now. It's kind of like the scope has kind of changed from like this being uh, a linguistic, uh, religious, or a cultural based attack, and now it's turned into like an economic form. And it's literally for people. It feels as though somebody's reaching into your home and ripping the food off of your plate now. And uh, that, that's kind of how it's being taken. So it's seeing it in a singular kind of event uh, it reduces it, that this just kind of popped up out of nowhere, that how are a million people plus kind of surrounding the capital, uh, that didn't happen overnight. Uh, and for many communities across India, there's a similar plight for them as well, including the Muslim community and other minorities. Um, and Prime Minister Modi's government has primarily been seen as a, a very anti-minority type government, whether it's Kashmir or Dalits or Christians in the country. And so that's my next question. Maninder, when we look at this legislation and these reforms, it sounds like it it's seen as racist legislation. It goes beyond just, you you know, economic liberalization. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it actually takes, uh, especially when the, you know, speaking from the Sikh community perspective, especially uh, of who it will impact the most. um, And uh, the Punjab is one of the areas where it will be the hardest hit out of this. Um, So the uh, the the poor already in India will be impacted the most. Obviously, the the, sm- the large landowners or the corporations have everything to gain out of this. Uh, they they fix the prices. People have to sell at those prices in open market systems. Uh, they can be run out of business. The corporations have money to be able to kind of hold out. Uh, small time farmers they can't. Uh, they'll just they'll go broke um, and they'll be bought out or their lands will be confiscated. Most of them are debt ridden already. So the whole like agricultural sector in India has been run into the ground over. Mm the last six, seven decades. So it definitely exists, goes beyond just the economics of these bills. Uh, it does target uh, those smaller communities, minority communities uh, in India. And I think economics is used as a tool right now to kind of like marginalize them further. Uh, in the past, it's been outright attacks. Uh, and we've seen that with this government as well, like the widespread arrest of journalists, of like political activists and Human Rights Watch report that just came out in 2020 for India talking about how uh, it's a continuation of widespread practice of harassing um, and prosecuting human rights activists and journalists who just happen to criticize officials and policies. Um, so there's a general fear of like either violence, arrest uh, at the hands of the state as well. So oftentimes this has gone by quietly and we've seen it year after year. Mm-hmm. It's just that now it's culminated into that there's nothing left. For people, this feels like a do or die moment. And that's why there's this outpouring both in uh, India and also in the diaspora as well. And I want to get into the the uh, protests around the world, including in Vancouver. But just a quick question before that. You know, the, the Modi government has done a really effective job in terms of public relations in the world ever since Prime Minister Modi came into power. But with this protest in India and around the world, including Vancouver, does the Modi government face a global public relations problem where people are starting to look at his leadership in India more critically? I think they're being forced to. Uh, the uh, when, when there were singular type issues that were focused on particular communities, it's a bit easier to kind of dodge them in the in I would say like the global political sphere. But now that it's turned into 
you know, like uh, the Sikh community, Punjabi community, or where, whether it's like Maharashtra or Bengal or a- any of these areas within India, you have various communities that are going back to their elected politicians in, uh, in each country. So whether it's Canada, the U.S., U.K., Australia, Germany, anywhere uh, where there's large diaspora communities, um, they are going into those elected officials and asking them to make comment. And a lot of elected officials uh, in these countries are now openly speaking up in their parliament um, in press, and this is creating a, a huge amount of pressure. It's probably more pressure than just the protests would create, and we've seen that in India before. Larger protests, uh, to a degree, um, uh, probably haven't happened, but similar type protests with uh, just as much like power and uh, movement across India have been quashed uh, because there hasn't been international kind of a lens on it. So mm-hmm. now it's kind of like, you know, how heavy-handed can you be? We saw protesters breaking through barricades and things like that, uh, you know, like fighting with the police, clashes happening and making it all the way to the outskirts of Delhi. But when you have uh, social media and you have media watching and you have the international lens on you, it's very difficult, it becomes more difficult to get heavy-handed, uh, and India is known for that. Mm-hmm. So I think it definitely is making a huge impact that their reputation across the world is now being uh, tarnished. It probably should have been tarnished a long time ago. It's just that there is the uh, like geopolitics of the world you know, based off of trade and economy and things like that. But this is something that nobody can ignore, I think. Just the sheer size of it uh, and the impact that it's having world over. Um, India just right now, like not only from that perspective, but from the perspective of if the whole country is shut down the way it has been, uh, even their like ability to import or export uh, materials uh, is being affected. So there, there's a ton of um, smaller things that are happening as well along with this. The longer this is drawn out, uh, the worse it's going to get, both reputationally and economically for India. And and so, Meninder, we will get into what's happening in Vancouver, but I just want to be clear, when we talk about the Sikh uh, dis- disporas over, around the world, Vancouver is home to one of the largest Sikh communities in the, in the world outside of India. Is that correct? Yeah, this this lower mainland area between uh, you know Vancouver, Surrey, and Abbotsford is probably is the largest, um, and uh, and it's it's also been like uh, very active over the years as well in like uh, in its movements against India in one way or the other, um, and it's a, it, it, this is kind of one of those situations though. It's like it's uh, when we look at like why the Sikh community is more overly involved and why it was the Sikhs from Punjab that broke through the barricades and kind of let in. You know, for us, this is really, uh, this is an inspiration coming from, like, Sikh philosophy. And, like, you know, there's ideas of, like, what we refer to as Bachai, which is sovereignty, which is, like, breaking the barricades, the clashes, getting there by uh, any means to make sure that, that their voice is heard. And then, you know, there's ideas of Sarvatapala, which is the welfare of all. And Punjab and Sikhs have been leading this uh, and taking everyone with them. And that's what we're hearing from the other states as well, is that we're riding on the the you know, the coattails of, of Punjab right now, that they, they brought us here and now we're with them. Um, and then there's the, the final one of Seva, which is like a selfless service. And people, you know, they've, they've managed to feed millions of people a day um, in these uh, in these protest sites. And kids from like all walks of life uh, backgrounds are flooding into these ca- camps of uh, that have been set up. Uh, for the protesters, and uh, they get they get to eat there, they get to take meals home. So it's a very, like, uh, the environment there, although it's a protest, it's a very, uh, like, everyone's in very high spirit, uh, and, and they're, 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 you know, we, we're referring, referring to this as siege, um, that this is a siege of Delhi, and uh, they brought, uh, you know, enough, uh, you know, food and resources and things like that to, to last six months, um, and they're camped out, and so they're they're pretty much there, and their demands are very clear, 
Um, so they're willing to kind of take this out into the long haul. So it, it is the Sikh community at the forefront uh, when it started. But to say that it's just the Sikh community uh, right now, it's grown outside of that to many other communities. And there's still people flooding in from the south, uh, from the east. Uh, just, I think, yesterday morning, um, like mass amounts of people flooded in from Rajasthan and other areas. So there's more people coming to the protest site. So it's actually getting worse or it's escalating in a sense uh, for the Indian government than it's uh, getting any better. Menendra, we need to take a break here. But just before we do, how many people this morning or this weekend are actively involved in that protest you've just been describing? How many people? I think it's difficult to kind of say, we've just been watching the news and it's hard to pin it down. But like the, the numbers just range between one to two million. Um, that are on the site right now with more coming in. Uh, and more coming in, the problem is that there's road blockades from the south and the east. Uh, so the army, the paramilitary police is trying to stop people from arriving, uh, but they keep pushing through. So the, uh, I think a rough estimate and a fair estimate would be between a million and two million that are now surrounding the capital. We are joined on the line by Moninder Singh, who is a spokesperson for the BC Gurdwaras Council. We're talking about the protests in India. And Moninder, you were talking about just moments ago, uh, well over one million people gathered and more coming all the time in Canada, as is the case in many other countries around the world. The leaders of all the political parties have had something to say in support of the farmers and their protests. You're convinced that this international uh, focus on this legislation is going to compel the Modi government, Prime Minister Modi, to amend these uh, laws that he's trying to introduce to the agricultural sector. Is there a possibility, though, that it could backfire, that all of the attention of the world and all of the gathering of humanity, well in excess of a million people, could uh, reach a sort of boiling point with the government where they just decide to put an end to it all and order everybody out? I think, uh, yeah, the, uh, I, I actually don't hold any hope out that this government uh, uh, could do anything that would actually benefit its people. Um, and uh, I'm not holding out any hope that the, they would amend anything because it, the actual call is not to amend, it's to repeal. Okay. It's, it's to remove all the laws as is, not to amend. The government has actually already made offers to try and amend something, but the amendments are uh, just another catch to kind of like force farmers into like a more marginalized situation. So I, I just want to, but the, I definitely agree with the, the comment that you just made around uh, the heavy handedness of the Indian government on protesters, protest sites in the past. Uh, we've seen a pattern of that. Mm-hmm. where eventually they just get to a point where they will use violence. Uh, and many people are surprised right now that uh, that violence has been shown right now in water cannons and tear gas, uh, beatings by police. And we, we've heard, uh, you know, like some people have been arrested on the protest site. Um, but if it gets to a point uh, of where there's just no negotiation moving forward because the farmers unions and the communities are very firm-footed on not amending and only repealing, right. uh, which, which is what's being supported by the diaspora community as well, uh, that... In that situation, uh, the escalation uh, is very uh, real, uh, and uh, that, that, that is a fear of the people on the ground. But they've also made recognition of that. You have many leaders on the ground already stating that uh, we're sticking in for the long haul. We're going to do this peacefully. There may be arrests. There may be like heavy-handedness by the police. We're going to stay firm. If they try to remove us once, we'll just come back, that this isn't going to end. They'll have, pretty much what their statements are is that they'll have to kill us to silence us now. Um, and this, you know, from this type of government, um, it's not out of the, the violence on the state side is not out of the woods, I guess. And we feel like we're in a very tense situation right now. 
um, and we're you know like we're watching very closely as to what's happening on the ground there. But it is definitely a possibility. And Maninder, when we talk about the heavy-handedness of a response from this government, the Indian Ministry of External Affairs has told Canadian leadership, including the Prime Minister and some members of Parliament, that uh, that Canadian leadership has encouraged gatherings of extremist activities. That's their quote. And they're legitimizing extremist activism. As a protester here in Vancouver, what's your response to that? I think this is a common narrative that the Indian government has placed on the heads of like the Sikh community for about 40 years or so. Um, and this is just a deterrent tactic. Uh, when they called in India, uh, sorry, Canada's High Commissioner, uh, and they made it, tried to make it very clear in the in media that uh, Canada should stay quiet on this and stay out of another country's affairs. Um, Canada has a responsibility, as do all countries. At least that is a minimum. What Canada has says is that the right to peaceful protest should be respected. Um, and I think that that's a very fair comment. That's not in getting involved in someone's uh, internal affairs. That's making mm-hmm. a comment that certain types of freedoms under the United Nations and you know even the Constitution of India um, that these should be upheld. Uh, that uh, using the extremist card, it's like it's very similar for us to turn around to tell India that as in like. Every time there's a protest in India, how come you come to Canada and uh, tell Canada to watch its extremist sick activity, which has been non-existent? Um, but like it's okay for them to do. It's very hypocritical in a sense. But I feel like the, the, they need to change the narrative uh, because the move this movement is so strong. So they they, they pointed the finger at uh, youth, uh, Sikh youth in Canada and the UK and others. Uh, every protest has been very very peaceful. Um, like as in it's, they're loud, and that's what protests are. They're loud. They're large. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's minor inconveniences that come from them around traffic and other things. People are very trying to be very respectful and follow COVID guidelines the best they can. Not always possible. So there is, uh, there's all of that is to be expected. But this narrative that the Indian government wants that there's extremist uh, extremism behind it, and we've even heard uh, on the ground in India, they're labeling this as a, a proxy of Pakistan. Uh, Indian media is known very well in the world, especially in the diaspora communities, as being almost like a propagandist type uh, media, and they're labeling this protest as a proxy of Pakistan, which really makes no sense at all. Uh, but th- th- uh, we feel it's a deterrent that they're trying to take energy away from the actual protest, uh, maybe div- uh, divide and rule, uh, maybe create some problems within the protesters, but really to, to, to kind of quash that international support that's pouring in right now from all major party leaders. We saw major unions uh, like Unifor and others come out in support yesterday and write letters saying that they support the farmer protests that are going on, uh, other unions as well. And everyone from like the prime minister to the foreign affairs minister, uh, right to the municipal level, uh, people are voicing themselves as elected representatives that this is wrong what's happening. Um, so this is a, it's, it's a large movement that they're not able to control. And I think they're flailing around right now and looking for something to divert the attention. And when we talk about the protests happening here in Vancouver, obviously there was a big one last weekend. There was another one on International Human Rights Day where part of Howe Street outside of the Indian consulate was actually closed down. These protests aren't exactly planned. You and I talked about how th- the protesters here who are organizing are watching what's happening in India. Is that right? Yeah, they uh, they kind of they kind of like ebb and flow. Uh, when things kick off a little bit stronger in India, you see the protests kind of energize again. So, um, like uh, the Human Rights Day one was the only one I think that was really planned that on that day people will gather. Uh, other times, um, to be honest with you, one of the first ones that happened here back in the first week of December. Uh, was anonymous. Uh, there was a poster that was circulated on social media. Something like twelve to fifteen hundred vehicles showed up in a parking lot. Hmm. Uh, 
Um, and nobody knew who the organizers were, uh, but everyone just started taking on leadership uh, responsibilities. Uh, like somebody like myself dealt with media, others dealt with lining up the cars, others, you know, made out the route on the spot, and they just moved people. And then a very large, long demonstration was held on Howe Street in front of the Indian consulate. But you're seeing a lot of like youth and decentralization of like even leadership and power amongst uh, the protesters. So people really don't know who's. Uh, organizing. Is there, um, is Malminder, I'm sorry, I, I have to interrupt because we're out of time and I want you to tell us about a website where people can go and learn more. Uh, right now there's a, there's a website, um, uh, multiple ones. There's a, uh, mainly on social media if you use the handle uh, hashtag Kassan Movement, okay. K-I-S-A-A-N Movement. Uh, and there's another very uh, kind of like a new, new website that's kind of been propped up for this, uh, which is uh, Panth Punjab. P-A-N-T-H-P-U-N-J-A-B dot com. Um, and from there, there's multiple links to other websites and resources and information. All right. Um, um, and all that is available. Good stuff. Meninder Singh, thanks very much for doing this. We appreciate it this morning. Thank you so much. I'm Sterling Fox. Co-hosting with me this week is Mo Amir. And joining us both from Edmonton is a microbiologist and immunology expert Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show and visiting scientist at the University of Guelph. Jason, good morning. Welcome back. Uh, good morning. Uh, I just want to make a clarification. Uh, I'm actually in between universities at the moment. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> all right, then. Uh, but <laughs> w- wanted to talk about vaccines this morning, Jason. All the United States television networks this morning have pictures of trucks leaving the Pfizer factory in Kalamazoo, Michigan, heading out to airports and destinations all over the United States. The rollout has begun in America, effective this morning. They say... Canadians will start to be vaccinated sometime this coming week. What can you tell us about that? Well, first off, when you're looking at the states, because the manufacturing plant for the uh, Pfizer vaccine is in the states, it becomes very easy for them to say, okay, green light and away you go. They've also been doing dry runs for several weeks, if not months. Uh, For us, we have to wait for it to come from Belgium, and it's going to come through the United States, actually through a hub in in, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, before it comes here. Um, Now, we've been doing our dry runs, so we're just waiting for that shipment to arrive. That should happen this week, and then we should be at the point where we're going to be starting to give that to the most vulnerable. And depending on which province you happen to be in, it's either going to be the the people who are in long-term care facilities uh, and their carers, or it's just going to be the people who are taking care of the long-term facility uh, um, residents. Jason, a lot of people who are not anti-vaxxers per se are really concerned that a vaccine with such high efficiency has rolled out this fast. I mean, we have Mm. influenza vaccines that aren't this effective. Generally, vaccines take many years to develop. So how was this vaccine developed so fast and with so much efficiency, at least the ones that we've heard of, Pfizer and Moderna? Right. So three points. The first one is that um, the flu vaccine is a platform. So all we're doing is we're just uh, cutting and pasting into the flu vaccine so that it makes it really easy for us to be able to make one every single year. Uh, The Moderna and the Pfizer are also based on a platform that's been taking 30 years to get here. I remember this idea of mRNA being used for genetic therapies in the early 90s. Hmm. So this has been a very long time coming. It's just that when it came to this particular uh, vaccine, 
the cutting and the pasting was very easy to do once we had the genetic sequence. And finally, when you look at how fast vaccines are being uh, approved, normally the limiting factor, as we call it, happens to be money. Mm. And the fact is that if you look back at Ebola, remember how we had that problem in West Africa and all of a sudden there was this 100% Ebola vaccine that just came in there and solved all the problems? Right. Well, that was in 2015, right? Well, the vaccine was made in 2004. But it wasn't until people started dying in 2014 in West Africa before the money was all of a sudden there to be able to run the trials. So it's not a matter of the speed at which uh, these trials are done. They're all, they all undergo the exact same amount of scrutiny. It's the how fast the money comes in to allow for them to be done that's really important. So do we have any idea of how long the vaccine provides protection? Like, is this going to be something like influenza where due to different strains, we might have to get a vaccine every year? So right now, we're looking at some of the people who got these vaccines uh, in the first phases to see whether or not they may still have antibodies and also uh, T-cell or cellular responses. And it looks like it is continuing after about six months, which is good. Um, But what we're probably going to end up doing is finding when the waning time happens. In other words, all of a sudden you start losing out because you're not getting um, that nice, robust immune response. Now, this is happening with people who are getting infected. So unlike, you know, the arguments that we hear about measles where you know well with when you get measles you have it for life but when you get the measles vaccine you only get it for 10 years that's probably not going to be the case it Mm. you lose it after you've got the real virus or you're probably going to lose it after you get the vaccine so in that sense the vaccine is still the better option is it going to be every year we don't know what we do know though is that this virus is most likely going to cycle just like common cold and flu viruses and remember for those of you wondering how is that possible um remember 2009 we had the h1n1 uh, virus uh the the swine flu as lots of people call the pandemic Mm -hmm. um we're on the 11th wave of that pandemic it's just that people have forgotten about it. So if you're vaccinated, can you go back to not wearing a mask and not dousing your hands with sanitizer every 10 minutes? No. Um, <laughs> see, the thing is that, first off, as soon as you get the shot, your immune system still doesn't know that you've got the shot. It, uh, the, the, the genetic material has to get into a cell, has to ask for permission to be able to produce that protein that looks like the virus. Uh, and then your immune system is going to kind of recognize and go, okay, whatever. And then three or four weeks later, depending on which one it is, you're going to get that booster shot. And that's mm-hmm. when the immune system comes around and says, hey, I know you. Okay, cool. I'm going to make a memory. Hmm. And then that's going to give you protection. That's when we have the massive antibody response. That's when we have the T cell response. It's all great. But again, what may end up happening is that you may still be exposed to the virus and uh, the virus may actually still replicate inside of you for a certain amount of time. This happens with every single virus that you have a vaccine to. So this is normal. And then what ends up happening is that you can still spread that. So what you want to try and do is find out, and this is going to take a few more months, um, what is the viral load that happens after exposure after you've had a really good immune response from a vaccine? That's going to take us probably till the end of the year. By that point, we're going to we're not going to have to worry about this pandemic anyways. I, I doubt that uh, Mo and I are the only two who have questions about vaccines uh, on this uh, uh, weekend before they start to arrive in our country. So let's open up the phone lines here, Jason, because I know that more than a few of our listeners have more than a few questions. We all tend to share the 
same general area of interest with our questions. But if you have a question for Jason Tetro about vaccines, the lines are wide open right now at 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. You mentioned the Pfizer and the booster shot. It's a two-shot sequence or two-jab yeah. sequence, as the Brits like to say. And the Moderna vaccine is one shot. So uh, after you, you were talking about how it takes a while for the body to absorb that uh, that new uh, shot, the material, and it distribute it through your, your system. And then the second shot three weeks later sort of seals the deal. In the case of the Moderna single jab, Jason, uh, how long should you allow realistically for the effect to to take over and and feel uh, that you could be immune well it's still the fact that um when you look at any kind of exposure that you have whether it be with a virus a bacterium a fungus or a vaccine your immune system requires about three weeks to be able to have that um uh, understanding of what it looks like so that it can build up that immune response. Okay. And then after that three weeks, usually you need some kind of exposure to be able to make sure that it's there. That's what the booster shot is for. Right. Now, again, what's probably going to end up happening is that if you are going to be only at one shot, then there's going to be sort of this um, slow, bu- slow buildup of your immune response And then they're going to assume that you're going to have some kind of trigger out in the environment so that you won't need that booster. That's how it used to be. Now, with the Pfizer, they know that you need that booster. Uh, Moderna, for the longest time, has needed a booster at 28 days. And some of the others, the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, were still determining whether or not a booster would be the best opportunity. Sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so when we get to the point where we know, and that that essentially is also uh, developed by Health Canada here uh, to to make sure that it has that approval, then you'll know what your um, timeline is going to be when it comes to getting a vaccine. Jason Tetro, microbiologist and immunology expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show, and on the line from North Van Arts, Nancy Cottingham-Powell. As our community art series heads back to where we started out a couple of months ago, we're back on the North Shore. Nancy, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you with us. North Van Arts is the home of the Anonymous Art Show. Tell us more, please. Indeed. So um, this is our 16th annual Anonymous Art Show. Uh, and what we do is we invite artists to um, submit eight by eight pieces of art. And we ask them to sign the back, not the front, so that when we put over 570 pieces of art in the gallery, everyone's viewing art for art's sake. So we have emerging artists like six-year-olds sometimes uh, submitting art and we have well-established artists and everything's being purchased for a hundred dollars and 50 goes to the artist and 50 goes to us as a fundraiser and this year we had to pivot because we couldn't have the 300 plus people that we normally have sure. in the gallery on opening night so we went online and um, <clears throat> launched it online and um, wow <laughs> We, we did all right. Like, we ended up selling 
way more than we had anticipated than we ever have before. And we've sold um, pieces of art all across Canada. We're shipping to Quebec and Ontario, and it's uh, quite remarkable, well, so, the response. And, and, and the exciting part about that is the customers that you're shipping to uh, out of province, Nancy, probably wouldn't have known uh, about North Van Arts under any other circumstances, would they? Exactly. I mean, other than our North Shore Culture Compass um, project that we've got, which uh, is a wide-reaching project, and if anyone's interested in the area, they Google it and probably would find that. But that's not so much about us. That's about our community, right? So, I mean, they'd eventually find out about us elsewhere. We've also got our arts education on that we've pivoted online since uh, the COVID changes and we've actually had people taking art classes from London, England, from Mexico City. So it's interesting. This is the silver lining is that organizations like ourselves that were very community based would never have thought of reaching that far and wide for audience. Right. And it's just happened during COVID. Hey, Nancy. So I'm a North Shore kid. I was scrolling through the the art that's still up there last night. I couldn't decide. So much wonderful stuff. I think it would make for a great present. I think this morning after I'm done here, I'm going to decide what I want. But I was wondering how and when does the art get delivered to you when you buy it? Well, if you're local, um, then you uh, just, uh, we package it up within 48 hours. You can come by Cityscape, which is at 3rd and Lonsdale, and uh, pick it up. Um, And we've got COVID protocols in place, so it just um, acts like a retail outlet. You just come in and wear your mask and hand sanitize, and and we hook you up with your package. If you live away, then you choose the shipping um, option, and uh, we'll we'll package that up and get it in the mail. Now, there's no guarantee at this short (laughs) timeline that it's going to make it before Christmas. We got everything packaged as fast as we could. I mean, the opening weekend was amazing like i mean we we sold well beyond what we had ever uh, thought we would achieve and so we were really busy packaging and getting everything up and running that was kind of the we had to call volunteers in and all sorts of things we're like wow this is way more work than we had anticipated (laughs) nice problem to have huh (laughs) exactly (laughs) so now one of the things that we've been sort of checking on community arts centers around the 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 lower mainland nancy is is how you're how, how you're doing through all of this some some art centers are supported completely by their municipality others have hybrid funding from members from sponsors how you how are you making out through all of this it's obvious in the art sale clearly is a hit how about the rest of the the package it is well i mean we've got a real combination of um grant funding um so we've got some core level funding from our um local municipality we were we're the north Shore is, is quite well supported that way, and but we receive grants from other agencies, uh, Canada Council and and uh, Canadian Heritage, and we also receive provincial funding through BC Arts Council. So and we, and some of that's operational and some of it's grants. So we had a lot of that in place, um, and that none of that changed. And then there's a lot of emergency funds that those agencies also put forward to help because what's happened to organizations like ourselves is our earned revenues mm-hmm. tanked, yeah, right? Because yeah. we had to close everything. Sure. And then we've slowly tried to get things back up and running, like online arts education. And we have a, a TIFF film series that we just had to shutter and we haven't been able to reopen. And um, <clears throat> But these arts education classes, obviously fundraisers like Anonymous are still going. We also have an ongoing art rental program and it never shut down. So, 
you know, we had some people that brought the art back because they, they were businesses and they said, look, we just aren't going to need this for the next little while. But then a lot of individuals looked at their art on the wall and said, okay, we're not traveling. We're not going out for meals. We're going to buy this piece instead of renting it. Well, good so stuff. We actually, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then we, the movies is a big client of ours. So uh, when the films all shut down, that hurt art rental but then when as they've come back up again once again some of them have chosen to, to purchase the art this time so well, that's good it's, it, it sounds it's like it's, it sounds like a little planning has gone an awful long way in terms of being able to be self-supporting through some pretty lean times nancy i wanted to just take a second and thank you for joining us this morning and the uh, anonymous art show by the way friends carries on and mo is going to be a customer here in a matter of Absolutely. minutes it, it carries on right through till december 19th so we wish you considerable continued Continuing success, Nancy, and thanks for doing this with us this morning. My pleasure. There's Nancy Cottingham-Powell, who is the executive director of North Van Arts. That's it for us, Mo. We're out of here. That's it. Flew by.